0: Well, it is uh, good to be with you again. Um, um, just getting sort of used to coming, trying to learn some of the names. Uh, as most of you will know, but just in case you're a visitor or new, I just say, my name's John Groves. Marion, my wife's with me here this morning, which is good. Um, we l- We're in Winchester, and I'm part of the leadership team, one of the elders there. But I used to lead Winchester following on from a earlier leader, who I think some of you'd know, Greg Haslam, when he went to Westminster Chapel. So I was leading there from about 2000, from 2002. But prior to that, I was in Hastings, where I led a church called King's Church Hastings. But I've recently, in recent years, handed over the leadership of Winchester to another young, slightly younger man, Steve Chick. And uh, I've been travelling around more within the group of churches we belong to, the family of churches called Commission and uh, helping and supporting there and trying to bring uh, a bit of help if they're having a bumpy time or encouragement, fortunately, most of the time, and just support. And Andrew, who's relatively recent here, uh, invited me to get involved with him. He himself helps churches, so it's a bit helping the helper. But I think he very rightly felt that um, he needed someone just to support and speak into him and get to know you and so I've come as a sort of representative, I'm a representative of the team that oversee and help the Churches of Commission, supporting Andrew, working with you, and, and here I am. And this is my second Sunday preach, I've been here for other things, but Andrew asked me to speak on the Bible, the Word of God, he, he just wanted to do some basic stuff in these first months or year or two, and so I'm very happy to do that, because I love the Bible and it's my, my favourite topic. And this is the, the second part of a two-part sort of talk. Um, I, I think it was in, November, in, November, in February that I came and spoke on Making Sense of the Muddle, which was really about the muddle of our lives, personal but you know, only too obviously, the nation we live in, the culture we're in, and how we need the Bible to help us there. And we focused our thoughts around 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, if you could pop that up, thank you just to remind you, which tells us all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible is very important for helping us to make sense of life and to bring strength and help to us. And the Holy Spirit works with the Word. Word and Spirit work together all the time. The spirit actualizing the word, making it real in our lives. The, the Bible is our source of faith. As we read God's word, faith comes. It tells us that. Faith comes as you hear the word of God. So we just never neglect it, apart from the obvious things of it correcting our lives and leading us in the right way. It's, it's our bread. It's our honey. It's, it's, it's spiritual food for us. And so we talked about that in a broader way last time. This time, I want to talk about Making Sense of the Bible, which was the title for this second part, second talk, because it's quite honest to say that when you do start reading the Bible, certainly as a new Christian, but even as older Christians, there are quite a few bits in it that you probably get a bit puzzled by. I'm not going to answer all your questions this morning, not at all, but I hope to give you a few guidelines about how we read the Bible and get the best from it. And uh, I myself would say there are many bits that I sometimes think, Lord, is that the best way of putting that? Um, and and you, when, you, when you get to heaven, you think, I would have liked a lot more of sort of like the Gospels or, or maybe a couple more letters from Paul. And you could have cut down on Ezekiel, if you like, Lord. I wouldn't have bothered too much with that. Or the first seven chapters of Second Chronicles. You know, you can, you can sort of feel like that yourself. You thought, this is like, it's quite a lot here. So I mean, what... what How do we handle it? How do we do it? And then there's the more serious challenges we sometimes have, where we, we feel that some of this confuses me or disturbs me, or I'm not sure how it fits 21st century Britain and stuff like that. So there are many, many questions we have, even though we love and respect the Bible. And I want to say that we need to learn, basically, how to read it and understand it, largely for ourselves, in other words, our personal reading, but actually... I think we need a little bit of a broader view, because the Bible isn't just a me book, it's an us book. It's written for communities, it's written for churches, it's written for groups of God's people to learn together and to help each other and encourage each other and exhort each other out of it. And perhaps we'll get a good example of that from where my background little passage is this morning, and it is only background because I want to be practical, so I'll be quite quick on this bit, but... My text, if you like, is Nehemiah 8, verse 8, which says this, and I'll give you the context a bit more in a moment. They read from the book of the law of God. That's their Bible, in effect, the Old Testament or parts of it. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Now, this is from Nehemiah 8, and I'm having it open. You're welcome to have it open or up on your tablet, because I'll make a few references to it, because I think it's a good sort of guideline about the bible first thing to say is there's unashamed truth that we need help often to do what it says here to to get clearly what it's saying and get the meaning so that we can understand what it what it's saying to us and this is Ezra and the priests and the leaders who were teachers of the law helping people to get it But this is not about academics, you know, scholarship. You've got to be a a great first in whatever Greek and Hebrew to do it. This is very ordinary at one level. These are are real priests. They were, of course, uh, more probably educated than the people around. But they are actually just trying to make sure people understand clearly what this is saying to them. And the context in Nehemiah 8 is quite a big gathering of people of all types and ages. and You get a summary in verse 2. The assembly that gathered was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. Which probably is a way of saying any child old enough to understand upwards. So it might be, you know, what we call teenagers and down into primary school age probably, so we're we're saying they're making the whole thing clear for the whole body, and we should never, um, we're never dumbing down the Bible, but we should never get sort of patronising and esoteric and thinking, oh, you know, you've got to understand all this to be able, no, no, God wants to speak to ordinary people. The Bible is communication from the living God to men and women and young people as soon as they're old enough to understand. And that's the gathering, and it's also a communal gathering. So the whole lot are hearing together, they're understanding together. There's a certain unity to their understanding, which is actually quite important. We don't all have to have exactly the same interpretation. We will differ on things, but there needs to be a sense in which what you are doing this morning is the right way, that the Bible is something we together try and understand. Now, the Bible was read then, we've seen that, but it was an atmosphere of worship, which again we've had this morning. If you look at verse 6, before he does the explanation, he and the other teachers, Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. All the people lifted their hands. It's biblical to lift your hands, by the way. And responded, Amen, Amen. doesn't mean you have to. And responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So there was an atmosphere of worship. And then they taught the Bible so we're not too bad are we that's what we're trying to do that's what we do but that's that's biblical we just might need to notice that and enjoy it that it that it's not a uh particularly a, it's the people together praising God it's it's teaching but it's in a context of worship it's in a context of the people together praising God and worshiping him then we've seen that what happened wasn't Ezra and his guys just tried to have a, a, a relevant talk about um, what was going on in Israel at that time and then tried to attach a few verses to it. No, no, their basis was to help people to understand what this was saying to them, which is really what most of us should be doing when we're preaching. This morning is slightly different, I would even dare to say myself, but we can have little exceptions, but normally, and I'm trying to do it now, we're trying to take the Bible and help us to learn from it and uh, that, that is the right way to do it, I, I would strongly say. I would strongly say that that is a prime role of preaching. It's not for the preacher to give us his political views or his diatribe. It's actually about helping people to get the word of God and obey it. Amen? So it's quite an important principle. Now, very quickly, we're going down the chapter, which we haven't got any time to explore, but I will have to tell you, these people had just come back relatively within this generation to Jerusalem had rebuilt the walls, and had rebuilt the houses. That's quite important for the moment. So this was an important time in the history of Israel. And they wanted now to hear what God was saying to them. They got the Bible, they read it, their Bible, and in it they found that God said, at this time of year you are to have the Feast of Tabernacles which very quickly meant they were to live in effect in tents or booths. They were to come out from their homes, live in um, like, like probably made out of leaves, to be honest, and branches, but live in booths, for seven days and have feasts, have a feast together. Why? To remember they were a pilgrim people, to remember they came out of Egypt, they didn't have a home, they didn't have a set place, to remember where they came from, God's people, they were actually pilgrims in this world and they weren't like the other nations and all of that, it was a massive thing. And this nation had not celebrated that Feast of Tabernacles for a very long time. The indication is, verse it says, Verse 17, it hadn't been done properly since the days of Joshua, which was a long time earlier. This is important because what happens with these people all heard the word of God. It was explained to them and the challenge for them, it's different slightly for us, but the challenge for them is clearly from this word we should be celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. We've all just built our houses, we've all just got into our new houses, but actually God's saying for a week, Get a pile of leaves and live in it. Well, it's a little better than that, but not much. You've got to live in a tent for a week. Because I want to remind you that you are my people, you're a pilgrim people, you belong to me. I set you free from Egypt when you were slaves, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They joyfully obeyed what they learned from God's word. That's the point I want you to get. They joyfully did it. What did they do? They went back beyond probably hundreds of years of neglect in this case, certainly a long time people hadn't done it right by the word. They went back and they said, we want to do it like it says in the book. They did it and they inconvenienced themselves to do it. It was not a great idea if you just built your house and got your family settled to say, hey everyone, kids, we're actually, maybe probably kids probably enjoyed it, but everybody else, I wouldn't have done. You know, we're going to live in a tent for a week, But we've got to do it because we're reminding ourselves who God is and who we are and all the rest of it. So, what's the lesson? Straight away it's a big one, isn't it? That when we read the Bible, we read it to understand what it says, have it interpreted, have it hit our lives. But it's for application in our lives. It's not for intellectual knowledge just increasing our sort of, I don't know, our... our, resources of mental knowledge so if we were ever to do a quiz we'd know more of course it's not that it's so that we can apply it to our life says what's it saying to my life now some of that could be challenging now actually if you read Nehemiah 8 they're full of joy and celebration as they obey god there's a joy in their hearts which you will always find if you truly do it in faith but it can also be awkward It can be embarrassing. It can be discomforting that you actually, right, what God's saying means I'm going to do something that might be quite difficult or inconvenient. And that's how it is. And I would argue, quite strongly, (laughs) that we need to be people of the word who are prepared sometimes to go back through and beyond human traditions, even though they've been around for hundreds of years, and say, what does God say? Really, is that just what we've allowed to happen with God's people for hundreds of years, may have been good or bad at the time, but it's not really how God said to do it. Now, that element will sometimes hit us. That's why some of us, some years ago, had to battle with the whole thing of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit. And we continue to need to live like that with the Bible. What's it really saying? What what are the biblical words, the principles, the communication from the living God to us. And, and, and as we read, particularly for us, the New Testament, we, we need to take it on board and say, oh, wow, we seem to have missed that. We seem to have added a lot of clutter or we've avoided that. And we, that's the challenge of the Bible. And that's why we need to hear it together. Amen? That's how we read and apply the Word of God. This is a great example for us from Nehemiah 8. Now, having given you that, which I hope you may even go away and look at yourself and just think through, I want in the second half, really, of what I want to say, I want to talk actually quite practically about how we do interpret the Bible and try and apply it in our lives. Because there are some good principles that aren't that hard, and I hope to be really practical now. How do we understand? How do we get clear? How do we do the Nehemiah thing? Get the clear meaning and then understand what it's saying so that we can obey it and live by it. Well, here's some, some guidelines. They're just guidelines. This, it's, this is just how I would share it perhaps if I was teaching on Bible interpretation, but I'm not making it a long lecture, just some basic principles. Let's put up the next um, thank you the next slide there are two principal tasks of good bible interpretation these two are very important careful study to discover what the bible's original intended meaning was and then finding the bible's meaning in the here and now now that may seem very obvious it is obvious but it's important and i think a lot of christians seem to miss it out let me just say it more clearly in a different way To really understand what God is saying to us now, it is quite helpful, I wouldn't say absolutely essential, because it isn't always, but it is very helpful to understand what God was saying to them then. Because God was speaking to Israel in what we saw in Nehemiah 8 at a particular time, and we're not going to go out and do the Feast of Tabernacles, but it might be good to know why we're not. And so, how do we apply it to us now? I mean, I tried to do it in the last 10 minutes, but that's the way we think. When we read the Bible, we need to almost get to a point where we sort of automatically work that way. Where we think, wait a minute, wait a minute, before I go down a side issue, what was God saying then to David, to Joshua, to Paul, through Jesus' words, the disciples, through the various letters and writings of the New Testament? What what was the then application? The Holy Spirit was doing it. We all believe the whole thing's inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is not academically watering it down. It's the opposite. It's trying to understand. Then I apply it to me now. Then, Lord, speak to me in my situation, in my church. And it's not going to be exactly the same. But the principles, the guides, the guideline of the original meaning helps us. That principle helps us to keep a clarity, and to keep a sanity, really, in applying the Bible to us. Because historically, Christians have characteristically often gone off at a tangent when they miss this out, when they don't get it. And there's some places where it's more easy to make those mistakes. Some of the Old Testament, of course, it would be easy to make mistakes. So you get historically Christians doing all sorts of Things that are like, I don't know, burning witches, if you like. Things you think, that's nothing. You're not getting that from the New Testament. Where on earth are you getting that from? Well, you're grubbing about in the Old Testament, taking bits of it, applying to you. You need to understand, what does the Bible say to you? Jesus didn't say burn witches. Paul doesn't say, well, if you find a witch, burn them. So, so you need to, I mean, these are real issues. And historically, there's plenty of examples where Christians, you think some of the answer here is understanding how the Bible works. And that might be true in a slightly less contentious way, well, it's fairly contentious at the time, with people who said, well, no, no, you know, the gifts of the Spirit aren't for today. Well, how do you get that? I, th- I would argue good, and I mean good, Bible interpretation, good interpretation, would lead you to expect the gifts of the Spirit. Now, I haven't got time to explore that, but and, uh, but I think, I think we need to realise to not do this right can have s- significant consequences. Now, the... the We don't want to get fearful, we just want to learn the best way to approach the Bible. So it helps us to find out what it meant then, and then, if I'm honest, with a humility and a prayerfulness to find out what God's saying to us. And humility is quite a part of this, that we we come humbly to the Bible, we come to try and understand it. We know it's going to take a little bit of work and challenge to us as well. Let's talk about these two tasks, that's what I want to do over the next few minutes. The first one, the original and intended meaning. Now, I, as well as most of you, I need help from other people to do this. I, I, I was a teacher, but I was a teacher of English and history. And I have done some study of uh, theology, but that's not really what I rely on. And nor, most of us rely on So this is not saying we've all got to learn Greek and Hebrew. Most of us, the next uh, little slide will say, rely on the skills of others to sort of help us to get a little bit of understanding of the original meaning. But this is not beyond most of us. So please bear with me. I'm not asking you suddenly have to do a theology course. Lots of other people have been gifted by God in the church to help us. For example, people who translate the Bible well. And there are many hundreds of them who have done that. Sometimes with pain and effort, if you think back to the authorised version or whatever it is. But, but to be honest, we have people who have done all the hard work and giving us a pretty good idea of what God was saying then. That's a basic start point. Let's talk about Bible translations for a moment. This is a very simple little thing of mine. And I'm not saying... Um, I'm not saying it's absolutely accurate. It's just to give you an idea. I don't know how new you are to to, to being a Christian, so I hope it will help all of us. You will find we are blessed with many, many translations of the Bible. If you go to a Bible bookshop, you go into the West Point bookstall, there's there's all sorts of different translations. In a way, it's almost too many, but that's just a personal view. I, I, I mean, once upon a time, we didn't even have the Bible in our own language, going back hundreds of years. Now we have them all over the place, don't we? in all different varieties. But personally, I think you need to understand there's a little bit of a difference between them, that they, some of them are more what I would call literal. They really try and translate into our language as best they possibly scholastically can with sense, what the original said, so they're trying to be literal. But then you get what you might call free or paraphrase, where people add all their own thoughts and interpretations, which can be a great blessing, provided you realize that's what they're doing. And I think that personally, as you grow as a Christian, it's good to have two or three different versions. So I would use the ESV, which is the second one along there, English Standard Version. I now have started to use the Christian Standard Version, Bible, CSB, which is a bit similar but a little more readable. I used to use the King James, I'm happy to use the New King James, but I tend not to use that so much now. I use the NIV and the New Living Translation, the NLT, which is more of a, uh, of a free translation. I've got a message, I haven't got a Passion version, which seems to be quite common today. But I must say to you, just say to you, that the Message and the Passion although passion calls itself a translation, it's not really a translation. It is much more of a, a paraphrase interpretation. I mean, it's quite different in some ways, and, and I think there's a big subject there, but, but both of those last two are one person, whether it's Peterson or I forget the name of the other guy, one person, strategy, which is never a thing to take too seriously. You need things that are done by a team of scholars, which are what you've got more the other end. So without rubbishing anything, it's best to say, have a little range of Bibles, maybe two or three, so that you can compare a proper translated, best translation they can do type thing with a couple of much more interpretive ones, like the New Living Translation or something. And that will help you to just get a real sense, what, it, what, what did it actually say at the time? What did it actually say at the time? And that's what you want to do. If you really want to get a little more help, I'd say have a good study Bible. I, I find the ESV, English Standard Version Study Bible, a very good one. A good study Bible will give you a bit of background, a bit of history, what's going on, a bit of what was what was kicking off at the time, and then may help you with some of the more difficult bits. Obviously, you can use Bible dictionaries and concordances. They're very helpful, but a good study Bible will help you. And probably, if you want to go a bit further, you could read a good commentary. A good commentary, which is not too hard to read without, you know, I prefer, because I, I don't look for heavy academic books, would be about something like the series The Bible Speaks Today, which is published by the IVP Press. And that will help you to read a bit more chunky detail about what was going on, what, what, how do we understand what God was saying then. They will be applying it to us, those commentaries and they will be people's views so you always they're not bible but they might help you because we want to say what was David doing then when he wrote that psalm what was what was he why did why was it a big deal what he did then and sometimes we need help to just understand that but when that's done we need this next one our own ability to read it carefully and ask a few questions this is when we're trying to understand what's it now The questions aren't complex, it's just simple questions of context. It's just reading the Bible properly. For example, you know, who is writing this to who? Even sometimes, who's speaking to who? When you're in a prophetic book, it's quite good to notice, is this the prophet speaking to God? Is it God speaking to the prophet? Is it the prophet speaking to the people is it directly God to the people? No, I mean, it's not. It's just careful reading, but it's quite useful to understand who's saying what to who. And so you, you, you look at what it actually says. In other words, you sort of read it, if you like, properly, like you'd read anything else. You'd read the paragraph and the context and think about it. But you might want to, if you've done the first bit a little bit and got a good Bible, be just thinking, hang on a minute, what do I know about, about this? What do I know that David or Joshua or... What do I know was the background for Ezra or Nehemiah? Have I learned a bit? And so I'm asking a few questions. What, what's he on about? What's he writing about? What's going on here? A little bit of background will help. Sometimes people um, use this word. They talk about it's important to understand the occasion of a book in the Bible. The occasion means what provoked, humanly speaking, what provoked it to be written? Do, do, what do we know? Why, why would they have written that at that time? What was Israel doing wrong? That the prophets are trying to put right or or what was paul trying to address in his letter etc etc now again the ones i've mentioned study bibles and things will help you with that but it does help you to ask the right sort of questions but you want to mostly ask questions about content you know what's it actually saying what's god saying uh what's the sense of this what what's the train of thought um what's the challenge Uh, and and in doing that, you might ask yourself some quite basic questions. I I need to remember, this is poetry, or this is prophecy, or this is law, or this is history, you know, because it's slightly different how you read those different things. Uh, Maybe I'll use um, a dictionary of Bible words. Maybe my concordance will be useful, and I'll find out where God spoke the same sort of thing to other people at other times. All of that is task one. It's trying to make sure you've understood Properly, the Bible as best you can in its context, as an ordinary person, and you can use Bible reading notes will help you as well. I'm not asking you to. I want you to be available. I'm not asking you to make a a sort of wall of of knowledge you can't get over. I'm just saying we need to be able to understand a little bit about what the Bible meant when it was first written. But then we move to the second task: what's God saying to me now? And that, of course. Is vitally important the Bible is about us in the end God's alive he's speaking to us the Bible is not an end in itself let me say that with great passion the Bible is not an end in itself it's God speaking to us it's a, a channel of relationship with God it's one of the big ways God communicates with us the communicating God we're interested in the God of the book not just the book amen And really important that we don't end up worshipping the Bible and treating it as though it was an end in itself. No, no, no. One day we won't need a Bible. We'll see Him face to face. That'll be long past the Bible. Hallelujah. (laughs) But until then, we have this amazing privilege that we have God's Word. And the Holy Spirit, who's with you this morning in your life, changing you, walking with you day by day, wants to work with the Word to help you hear more from God. But you can hear from God without the Bible. I mean, we do get words from God. But this is the background check, even of those words. It's the, it's the plumb line. It's the background to everything in our Christian lives. But it's a means to an end. Isn't that wonderful? We're not, this isn't the end. The end of the task is not just to understand a book like as though you were studying Shakespeare or trying to get an A-level in Shakespeare. So, you know, it's not that. It's not, but it is important we treat it like we've been talking about, as a book, as understanding it. And then we are trying to connect and hear from the living God. So, and this actually is my last slide, because I've got a bit more talking to do. This verse is a lovely, important verse. As you come to the Bible, open my eyes. This is a prayer that I may see wonderful things in your law. Psalm 119, 18. When I was quite young, I had... Scripture Union notes, and this used to be the prayer they encourage you to pray. And I'm not ashamed to say it's a great prayer still to use. You know, when you come to the Bible, say, Lord, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your word. That is a great way to approach this book, which is automatically making you recognise I'm going through the book to the Lord of the book, the God of the book. I'm not just focusing on this. Lord, and so prayer is a huge element of our studying and, and looking at God and learning from his word. The reason I, I, I emphasise, which I did, that we, it's good to understand what it was saying then, is that is a humbling balance on us getting into odd, esoteric and even dangerous misuses of the Bible because I'm pausing here because I don't want to get too long on this, but I must say it. I think even in our culture, in our day and age, with Christians all around us who, who love Jesus, tussling with things that are cultural in our time, we must acknowledge that we've got to take this approach with the Bible and that God will not contradict himself speaking now through this book, Uh, I've got a case, I've got an example in mind, and it's probably rather an obvious one. In our day and age, there is a lot of thinking and reinterpreting going on around human sexuality. I mean that, human sexuality linked to sexual immorality, linked to things like same-sex marriage, which are now legal in our land, and which many Christians contest with, and some churches are coming round to thinking they can bless same-sex marriages. But to be honest, if you read the Bible in any thorough way, it's quite hard to accept that God is okay with, let's take that obvious one, same-sex marriage, because he doesn't contradict himself. Where on earth could you find that in here? And I'm not saying this because I'm anti this and that. I've got many friends who are gay. But I'm, I'm just saying, look, come on, you know, let's be real to the Bible, You know, even if the, I'm not even saying the culture won't do things like that. That's okay. I'm talking about Christians and us in the church. You know, we can't say, oh, I think I can find a way here by twisting this and jogging this around. Yeah, I think I could say, you could do. Come on, there is no way. You know, I mean, there are many examples where Christians have done this historically. I mean, let's take a less controversial one, perhaps, but when I was brought up, there was this cessationist uh, teaching that, that the gifts of the Spirit had ceased and the church and denomination I was in said, that was 1 Corinthians 13, said these things will cease when that which is perfect is come. If you know the Bible, you know it's what it says. I was told that which is perfect was the Bible. That's what I was taught. That when the Bible came, you didn't need the, gift, the miraculous gifts of the Spirit because that was that which was perfect. Now, This simple exercise I'm talking about, there is no way when Paul wrote that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he or anybody else was thinking of a completed Bible. When he wrote that which is perfect is come, he, as the context clearly shows, was thinking of the return of Jesus and the new heavens and new earth. And that which is perfect is come, which makes eminent sense when you look at it that way. But the idea that, that something completely off, that wouldn't have been in Paul's head, because this, is, this, this, this book was formed two or three hundred years later, really, brought together, you know, that that's what, he was, that's what God meant. Now, these things are important. We have to think, I mean, they're controversial. Even what I've just said is controversial. On both of them, they're controversial. Both what I said about the sexuality issues, what I said about that. There are Christians who would strongly disagree, but to help us to understand, we have to say, oh, what are the principles of our Bible? You know, how do we, are we, are we really genuinely interpreting this fairly and why? Can you really say that when these things were written, that could, could have been in somebody's mind? Well, that's how we have to really do the chunky stuff. As we're trying to hear, we cannot say, well, God's just told me that that verse means the Bible. God's just told me that well you can say that but that can, that can be challenged by well how did you interpret it that way now I can see you're all serious but this is real Christianity we have to do sometimes the hard work and it's not like as I've said an individual thing we need to be together in church we need to help each other God's speaking to us as a community we need to learn together We need to submit to those who have certain strengths, perhaps in teaching in one way or another. So it's all very important. But let's just ease it back as we come towards the end because it's not just about getting it right, what am I supposed to do, do's and don'ts. The Bible is not about that. It's about enjoying God and letting him speak to you. It's about faith. God wants you to grow in faith and faith comes as you hear what the bible says most of the stuff i've chosen a couple of controversial things the last five minutes but most of the stuff in the bible is beautifully freely going to make sense to you you know you read the psalms you read most of the letters to be honest the gospels god is speaking to you yes of course we want to sort out some of these more tricky things but but to be honest most of the time the flow of what god's saying in most areas is is obvious a good prayerful common sense and it will speak to you (laughs) but you know you you know there there are things God's saying and many things are not that different for us to them in the first 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 audience stuff like drunkenness stuff like adultery stuff like praise worship joy knowing God as our father um you know (laughs) most of it you know you don't need an awful lot of interpreting it still means the same for us it, to tell the truth and not be deceptive, to, 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 to be brave, to be courageous, and to obey God, and oh, you know, it could go on and on. It flows the same for us, doesn't it? It's not like, well, we, we, you know, all, there's so many tr- problems here that I'm not sure I, No, no, most of it will speak. But we need to let God apply particularly the bit for us when we're studying it. What truth do you want me to see, Lord, today? What am I to be obeying here and applying in my lives? In my life. I just want to say a few, just uh, as we have got five minutes, just going to finish, 12, is that right? Yeah. Just a few little comments, which are a bit, bit more, again, about just, just how we interpret it. I, I found this helpful when it first someone first said it to me. The Bible examples are not the same as commands. Commands are commands, examples are examples. You can learn from examples, and and God can speak to you from examples, but they're not the same as commands. Let me give you one. Jesus, we're told in the Gospels, got up early while it was still dark, went out alone to pray. Now that's a magnificent example, and you can be challenged by it, and you can take it on board willingly, but it's not a command. It's an example. And, and you you know, so an example and a command are not the same thing. Lots of little things to help us to understand. I mean, it, let's take um, a practical. How do we choose church leaders? There's not many commands in the New Testament. There are examples, but the examples are things like prayer and fasting, the apostolic involved. There are things like, yeah, that were the church, the sort of balance between the apostles and the church saying amen to each other. If you look at, if you Look at the appointments in Acts six. Uh, the, there are the qualifications, character qualifications in Timothy and Titus, uh, not to do it hastily. And you, I'm just trying to think them up. There's lots of examples and things, but but actually, there seems to be no rigid command about how you choose church leaders. It's fascinating, isn't it? You think crumbs that would be quite important, I would. <laughs> but God's quite capable of giving detailed commands because He does it in other places. But He, he, he chooses not to which is partly because the New Testament is going to be for the whole world and trans and God knew it was going to last at least 2,000 years. So we get in there and we get some examples which we need to seriously prayerfully take. By the way, prayer and fasting, I don't often apply to that, choosing elders, but that's just, I'm not saying I'm right, I think I'm probably wrong. But, you know, there's stuff, you, you, you know, you think, oh, right, the example is quite important, but there's no rigid rule about it. And it's just worth saying that because often in church history we get very uppity about how we choose our leaders and we all have fights over it. But actually it's hard to find something to fight over really, if you really think about it. And there seems to be quite a lot of flexibility about what you actually do because in principle if God hasn't given direct commands you're free as a believer to do, if you like, what you want to do modified by biblical principles of right and wrong, like, you know, obvious things. Is it breaking other princ- other laws or rules? Or is it beneficial? Is it addictive? Or, you know, what's the impact on other people? And all sorts of principles can apply. But but there isn't a command, there's a flexibility in there, which I think sometimes we, um, as Christians, we haven't done well on historically. Um, uh, and I've got one other example in my head. Uh, my my background in my denomination um they were very, some of them were very strict about Christians being buried and not cremated. And I respect that. And I personally would prefer to be buried. Marion knows Who's that. <laughs> not just yet, Marion. Um, <laughs> but, but some Christians could get very... Say, you know, cremation is pagan. I, won't eat, I know people in my background who would not go to a cremation of another Christian. But on the basis that it's not in the Bible. What's in the Bible is burial. That's right but it's not a command, it's an example. <laughs> and you've got to just be careful how you handle it. You may have a personal preference, like I've expressed my own, but I don't think you can turn it into a rigid command. You're not a proper Christian if you're cremated. Do you see the difference? It's quite important to understand some of these things because Christians get quite strong about it. Now, I, I've told you, out of perhaps the way I've brought up, I do have a preference, but I don't feel that people are cremated at <laughs> doing something sinful. I really don't. And I've got a whole whole reason, I've had pastorally to talk this through with people over the years, so I'm touching something, and I'm not giving you the big answer, but there are, you can be at peace, you can be at peace if you want to be cremated, that is absolutely fine. God's going to be able to sort it out on the day of the resurrection, which is what some people worry about, but, you know, bless them, you know, people were martyred and burnt at the stake, people are blown up and lost in wars, and, you know, God's going to still be able to raise us up, Amen? So don't let anybody go home worried because I threw that one out. (laughs) But I'm just trying to show you the difference between getting very heavy about an example, which is quite important to understand. Right, that was a digression, and we need to come to an end because you need to go home and have your lunch. I think that God has accepted the risk that we can get in a muddle trying to interpret. God's accepted it because the Bible is much, much better than just a list of rules and do's and don'ts. It's much better than that. It's a living book of real people meeting a real God and having real faith and there are real villains and there are real heroes and there are real questions and there are real mysteries just like our lives because they are real lives. And you read them and you think this is a hero of God and he's got three wives or something. How does that work? And you, you have to realize the Bible, God wants us to have it. It's 60% of this is, is real stories about real people, but people who met God and who speak to you. And that is how God has chosen to do it. I've got, I'm sorry, I'm getting excited. Give me two minutes to be excited. It's not just a rule book. It's not just a history book. It's got poetry in it. Think of Psalm 23. It's beautiful. We all love Psalm 23. But why, why didn't God just say, don't worry, I'll look after you. That's, this is called providence. Providence means like that. You know, like like a rule with a dictionary definition. He didn't. He gave us a poem. Doesn't mention the word providence once. Doesn't. It just tells you the Lord is your shepherd. It's beautiful. Hits your emotions, touches your imagination, communicates. God made us. We need, we need things that we read judges and we go, this is revolting. What were they doing? You're meant to feel it in your gut. It's not right. You're meant to know it's not right. But you're meant to know they did it and how God dealt with the thing. Or you, you read the passion that Paul feels. And, and, and why did God choose to give us letters? Why didn't he give it all rules? Some people prefer that. I'm delighted he didn't do that. He gave us theology on the move, task theology. Applied theology. Paul's letters are full of theology, but they're real, raw life. He's writing to real people like you and me. And he's applying the truth of God in it. That's how we have our Bible. Jesus told parable. Someone asked him a question. Who's my neighbor? Jesus didn't give him a dictionary definition. Do you know what he did? Which one was it? The Good Samaritan. He told the story of the Good Samaritan. That's not an answer. I wanted a dictionary definition. Who is my neighbor? Come on, Jesus! Say it in one sentence. Don't make it all waffly. What's the matter with you? That's not how it does. <laughs> Praise the Lord! I know we. I want you to learn to love the way the Bible comes to you. Love the fact that it's a parable about. Love the fact you have to work slightly to get the point. Jesus wants you to work to get the point. You have to let it hit you. You have to get your emotions to people. You know, people write books on the parable of the of, of the prodigal son. Tim Keller's written a one, brilliant one. How much better that story of the prodigal son is than just some simple black and white answer? When, when, do, you, do you see what I'm saying? It's a wonderful book, but that carries a risk. We have to learn from it. We have to, God's taken the risk, you take it with me. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Let it Enjoy it. Let it stir your heart. Let it stir your mind. God will apply it into your life. It is something to enjoy reading. Don't feel you've got to read masses all the time. I mean, it is written, it, it, not in little bits. Of course it is. It's written in books and letters. But you can just linger. Let God speak to you. Let God apply it to you. Pray. I, sometimes when I read the Bible, I just stop and pray. Sometimes I pray a bit puzzled. It's not always praise. Praise. Sometimes it is. And you just talk to the Lord who wrote it. say, what? what? I mean, sometimes it's like, well, what on earth is this about? But sometimes it's more like, what does this mean for me? That's a better prayer, really. And, and I think you need to do that as you read it. It's ultimately a wonderful light for your path. I would say, as I close, be all there when you're reading the Bible, i.e. engage with it. Be all there. If you can only read a little bit, read a little bit. If you can't read, and I do understand people, sometimes like, that, then get the Bible on audiobook or something and listen to it. Get the flow of it. Although sometimes you might want to stop and just think about a little bit of it that you've just listened to. Whatever way you do it, it's food. You must eat it. (laughs) You will starve otherwise. You'll be a weak Christian. This is our bread. Amen? And it's our light. And we need to enjoy it and make sense of the light. Making sense of the Bible will help us to make sense of life. Okay. Let's stand. I'm going to pray and I'm going to give you a little bit of a book, rec- a book recommendation and I'll go home and you can go home too. <laughs> Let's stand. We're not, it's not a sort of talk that you, you do in a peel on really, but I just want to pray for God's blessing on you this morning as you've listened to all I've said. Now I have covered a lot, I know that. I've covered a lot of material. Father, I ask you that people, my brothers and sisters with me this morning, will only remember what you want them to remember. Lord, I pray that every single one here this morning will have something to go home with from today. I pray, Lord, that you would speak, Lord, to your servants through what I've said and through your word. And I pray, Lord, there'll be a growing love for your word amongst us here in this church, a growing love which will find its way through to action, that we'll read it, Lord, and listen to it and pray about it. And I pray, Lord, that you'll continue to help us to walk in the light of your word. I ask that for your glory. And Lord, we look forward to the day when we're just going to see you face to face. But Lord, till then, thank you for giving us your word. Amen. Okay, you you can sit down for a moment. I just want to recommend two books. If you're the sort who would like to read a bit more, this is...